18 through 22. Book of Acts, chapter 19, I'm sorry, chapter 14, beginning at verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the multitude, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he arose and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe, and after they had preached the gospel to that city and had many had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconian and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Amen. Continuing along the lines of the theme, the warrior's power life, I want to, although our objective is to get to Acts chapter 16 and begin working at verse 25 and 26, but this, of course, as I have mentioned earlier, is a backdrop, the reason why when you get to Acts 16, in the crisis moment, Paul and Silas respond to their crisis while incarcerated with two reactions. They responded with praying and they responded with singing hymns unto God. But before you get there, you need to understand what gave birth to that kind of reaction. And so I want to back up to this episode in Paul's journey in chapter 14 because I think it's critical in understanding the three phases that we talked about last Sunday. God's provision of opportunity and yet the constant challenge of opposition and the desire by evil to provide oppression. I want us to see how that plays out yet in Paul's journey as we get to Acts 16. She is undoubtedly one of the most least known figures of the civil rights movement, yet she is an unsung hero whose status stands tall alongside the likes of Martin King, Malcolm X and Medford Evers, Rosa Parks and James Farmer, Stokey Carmichael and others. You may never witness the name of Amelia Boynton Robinson in bright lights. You may never see or hear of a public school or a highway or a street or community facility or a building on the grounds of a higher education institution being named in her honor. Yet, her efforts to help organize the march from Selma to 
Montgomery on March 7, 1965, galvanized her name in history. Right alongside John Lewis and Rosa Parks, Ms. Boynton made her walk with the demonstrators to march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge into Dallas County to protest the continuing evil of racial segregation and the disenfranchisement of blacks of the day. You may not understand this, but what you have witnessed or you would have witnessed would have been their attempt, all of them, to cross the Pettus Bridge, but they were boldly met by county and state police who attempted to brutalize and terrorize, and terrorize both blacks and whites. And one Sunday in the future, I want to share with you the importance of understanding how there were white Americans who stood tall and who even gave their life that they too might understand the importance and the imperativeness of eroding the country of racial segregation. But they were brutalized and terrorized by those county and state police who took the opportunity to change the condition of a people who were legally oppressed and opposed at every turn. Ms. Boynton was ushered into the spotlight when attempting to cross the bridge, she was struck by one officer on horseback across the back of her shoulders and the back of her head, rendering her unconscious. In essence, the oppressors left her for dead on the bridge, thinking that her voice and her steps for justice would be both silent and stopped. But Evil was not aware that there was a photographer there on the bridge as well, taking pictures and photographed Miss Boynton lying on the Edmund Pettus Bridge and eventually sent around the world for everyone to view. Although they failed to cross the bridge on that particular day, after two additional attempts, and they later crossed the bridge, but turned and went back to the other side of the bridge. On the third attempt, they were successful at moving across the bridge and making their way into Montgomery, simply because they were assisted by federal authorities. You will remember that that day of crossing is best determined and labeled as Bloody Sunday because many African Americans and whites suffered not only physical abuse, but some became a fatality which gave birth to the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Yet it was that kind of action that pushed the necessity of framing such a law into action. And lo and behold, could you imagine what happened? The guest of honor at the ceremony when President Lyndon Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act into law in August of 65, the guest of honor 
was, was Amelia Boynton. Although she transitioned into eternity on August 26, 2015, at the age of 104, her life depicts the meaning of experiencing opportunity that will be met by opposition and oppression. And yet she experienced the ovation of victory because she employed a fighter's mentality and a stern focus and a finishing spirit. And now in her actions, I see the illustration of something that gave her life power in which she earlier recognized who it was in the person of Jesus Christ. Being raised in the church and through her life beyond the Pettus Bridge witnessing and surviving the death of three of her husbands, a brilliant mind who attended the Georgia State Industrial College for, col for colored youth now as a Savannah State University HBCU transferred to what was then called the Tuskegee Institute, now known as the Tuskegee University, earned her degree in home economics and eventually came back to the very town that sought to destroy her on the Pettus Bridge to teach economics to students and to help them well round their lives for a productive future. She is without question an unsung Shiro, but her name is not in the lights. And yet, had it not been for her photograph on that bridge lying unconscious, Martin King, who actually came in on the third day to help lead this march, it may not have never caught the attention or the momentum that it gained had it not been for Amelia Boynton. Martin King gets the highlight, and that may be because he was the willing soldier to be out front, but it's not always the soldier who stands out front that gives us the assurance that the battle is being won. It's those who stand in the background who are doing the hard work and Amelia Boynton was certainly one of those individuals. Last week, we learned that Paul was demonstrating how to handle oppression and opposition. Everywhere Paul went, he encountered opposition and oppression because he was simply evangelizing about Jesus Christ. And it was clear a clear indication that oppression and opposition can never overcome the power of God when God grants an opportunity where victory has already been established. I tried to make clear that at every turn of Paul's journey, God had not only given opportunity but provided an ovation of celebration to Paul's experience to at least provide for the enemy an understanding that you cannot win when you fight against God, God's self. Your arms are too short and evil and opposition just can't reach far enough. 
Paul demonstrated what it meant to have a warrior-like mentality and he also suggested that this is the reward of what happens when you labor and fight like a warrior. Even while in Lystra, the opposition, when you read Acts 14, the text that we read this morning, the opposition thought for certain they were sure, I believed, that when they came down from Iconia and they tracked Paul down, they were sure that they not only stoned Paul, but they were certain in their stoning that they would silence his voice. But when you read Acts 14 and verse 19 and 20 very closely, you will recognize that the opposition made a crucial mistake. They made the mistake of thinking, says the text, that they stoned Paul and says the New American Standard Version, supposing he was dead. They made the awful mistake of thinking that just because they beat up on Paul and they stoned him real good, that when they left him, he was certainly dead. What they should have done was hung around just a little while longer to be certain that their intention was accomplished. Their conclusion may have been fulfilled had it not been for the next line in the text. They should have made sure that in stoning Paul, that there was no pulse beat, that there was no heartbeat, that the blood had stopped flowing and that in fact when they left, they could have left with certainty that that was the end of Paul. Verse 19 says that they dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But someone should have told them, their own fellow evildoers, that this joker has been through this kind of persecution before. And I just hate to remind you that every time before that they thought they had him out, he managed to come back every single time. Do you not know that life in itself has some very interesting opposers to you? And that they think that sometimes when they stone you with their criticisms and they stone you with their manners of opposition, they make the crucial mistake of thinking that just because they knock you down that you are out for the count. And they walk away failing to check to make sure that you're not only knocked down, but you are completely dead. And by making that crucial mistake, that gave an open door, says verse 20, to the next element in Paul's movement that certainly gives us life because they should have been smart enough to read or at least know that the text says that their conclusion didn't come about because says verse 20 when the disciples came and stood around Paul <laughs> see that's where the joy comes because now the text shifts from Paul being physically injured to Paul now experiencing spiritual intercession. The disciples came, 
to stand around Paul and I don't believe they came to merely make an assessment of Paul's injuries but I think they came and stood around to merely consult the chief physician himself by way of intercession they may not have known the manner in which our foreparents used the terminology but in their own way they looked unto heaven and said father I stretch my hands unto thee at this moment in which the oppressors have stoned our fellow servant Paul we have no other help that we know and if thou will withdraw yourself and your hand from us there's just nowhere else we possibly can go so I'm just convinced they looked under heaven and begin to cry out Lord you know how hard these stones were and you even know the condition now that Paul is lying in where we are foreseeing Jesus the Messiah later on when he would say where two or three have gathered together in his name there he is in the midst and because these two or three gathered together around Paul something tells me they join hands together and when they join hands together they lock spirits together and Paul would later tell them your spirit will bear witness with my spirit that we are the sons of God and all I just came by to tell you is that when the sons of God get together and when they join hearts and hands together no matter what the opposition no matter who the oppression it's an opportunity by God to make sure that my children experience an ovating moment where when the enemy think they are down and out and dead it's just nothing but a moment for me to restore their soul and to restore their strength and to let them know they may think they have knocked you out but it's a chance for you and I to have private conversation where we can enter into the unconscious moment and you can just talk to me all by yourself without any interruptions at all. Have you noticed that you get your best conversation with God when everything else has purposely been blocked out and you got nobody else to call on, no place else to go and your back is flat up against the wall and it's as if your feet have been cemented in the place that you are standing and all you can do is just open your arms and your eyes and say Lord here I am talk to me in this most desperate moment because it just looks like I am out and down for the count and God says not so not so at all in fact I got you exactly where I want you because I need to prepare you for your next assignment and you would not believe what God does with Paul here he is knocked out knocked down in the very place to which Paul has been stoned his next assignment is to go right back into the same place that knocked him down that cursed him out that called him names that stoned him all up 
that scandalize his name our intention is to leave that place and never come back again but look at God you going right back to the place to which you were and they stoned you and they tried to destroy your life I'm sending you back because you are a living testimony there's no such things as sticks and stones may break my bones but words will never harm me but I just want you to know says God that the sticks and stones just might hurt your bones but my word will forever elevate you where you need to be look closely at this text if you will they left him for dead they should have took the time to check to make sure that Paul really was dead but he moved from spiritual injury to spiritual intercession and as I said before, I don't think they stood around him just to give an assessment of Paul's injury, but they stretched their minds and their hearts out to God. And as a result, they called on God. If you look closely at this text and read it with a sense of being meticulous, you will notice that you can see yourself in this text. People with their mean spirit and life sometimes with its unfair consequences stone us with its pain and with its depression and with its heartbreak. It provides us sometimes with a frightening diagnosis and its intentionality being used by evil seems to leave us for dead. But whether at home or at church, when I am injured by life, God sends some disciples who will gather around me and intercede in my injured moment. That's the reason why prayer time and the prayer meeting is so vital to your life if you are willing to embrace it. Notice that what happens when they gather around Paul, says the text, here's the joy, here's the shouting news. Those who left him for dead didn't realize the power of what happens when they gathered around him. Look closely at the text. The Bible says that when they gathered around him, verse 20, they stood around him, but he arose. He got up. He got up because through intercession came inspiration. When they were interceding on his behalf, God was instilling inspiration in Paul's life in an unconscious moment. Haven't you noticed that sometimes when you go to bed disappointed or you go to bed suffering from disease, which is, comes from the root word dis-ease, and your spirit is dis-ease as you're sleeping, but if you close that moment out in prayer, God, in an unconscious moment, speaks inspiration to your spirit. And the next morning when you get up, it's as if something in the midnight hour had washed all that burden away. And that's because God, watch this, revisits the garden of Genesis 2 in the cool of the eating, Genesis 3. And in the moment in which it's midnight in your life, but it's morning, in the glory of God. 
See, remember the Psalm, Psalm 35? Weeping might endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning, not necessarily when the sun rises, but when the previous night passes and the next morning enters. That's the difference between 11.59 and 12.01 the next morning. Because God instills inspiration. Inspiration to the point that he began to speak to Paul in that midnight hour. And how many of us are in this house this morning who can bear witness that once we've been stoned to death by the job through the course of the week and by people and by family and by circumstance, if they just let us get to church. Stone me, but if I can just get to church. And sometimes I have to drag myself here. Sometimes I have to limp here. Sometimes I have to crawl here. But if I just get here, as long as I get to church, as long as I get to the space where other disciples can gather around me, because when I get here, I get surrounded and my feet get strong and my hands get strong and my legs get strong and my arms get strong and my heart gets renewed and my joy gets restored all because I got to church and other disciples stood around me and they interceded and as a result I was able to stand up one more time. Somebody in this house this morning realizes that I am able to stand up for Monday morning's challenge because I get to church on Sunday and some folks stand around me and when they stand around me, it gives me strength to stand back up and when they have left me for dead, I find myself getting renewed by the Spirit of God because the Word says they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. David said wait on the Lord and be of good courage and he will strengthen thine heart. Somebody ought to stand up this morning because you have been surrounded by other disciples who are interceding on your behalf. When Paul stands up, he's going from being injured to experiencing intercession to gaining inspiration to now being induced by the Holy Spirit. Induced means to be led or to be moved to a course of action by influence or persuasion. And look closely at the text, amazingly, says verse 20. When they had surrounded Paul and Paul stood up, look closely now, here's a piece of inspiration. The next day, says the text, the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derby. But when they went away to Derby, the Bible says in verse 21 that they were preaching the gospel to that city and they had made many disciples. I, I think this is a victorious statement made by Luke. Because it suggests to me that sometimes when you stand up, 
you need to go right back before the enemy so the enemy will know that you didn't get the best of me. But then there are other times when you need to stand up and then just go away someplace else to get yourself back together and then come back because you need to be renewed so that when the enemy comes back at you again, you will have double the strength that you had previously because you went away someplace else. Look what God does. He takes Paul and he takes Barnabas and they go someplace else to minister. And the Bible says in doing so, they made many disciples. But look at the next line of verse 21. They had the nerve to return back to Lystra and back to Iconium and back to Antioch. But they came back with a renewed vigor. And look at verse 22. This is what they were able to do. Strengthen the souls of the disciples. And I'm convinced that God allowed Paul to be stoned by those who left Iconian and found him in Lystra so that those disciples would first witness the power of what prayer could do in an impossible situation. Or what looks like you've already been defeated, not so. So they gathered around and what does God do? A symbolic gesture of resurrection because it symbolically resembles what happened to Jesus see if you go back to Calvary they have gathered around at the foot of the hill and they are walking among themselves chanting finally he's done but there's one somebody a centurion soldier says Matthew who looks up to Jesus and says surely this was the son of God and yet no one else hears what the centurion has to say. There is the reasoning among all of those that finally they have killed Jesus, not hearing the sayings that Jesus gives on the cross. Particularly when he comes to the final, Father, into your hands I give my spirit. But they are thinking that he's out for the count. They bury him, Nicodemus and others, in a tomb, Joseph's borrowed tomb, thinking that's the end of the situation. But those disciples, even in fear, have gathered in the upper room, waiting and wondering what's going to happen unto us. Even in their fearful moment, they in themselves trying to figure out what happens to the Lord of our life and what now happens to us. Not understanding that all on Friday evening and all through Saturday and yet early on Sunday morning, he got up. The symbolic gesture of what, Paul, what God does in Paul's, he got up. And in getting up, he goes back to the very town that crucified him in Jerusalem. And that's the reason why God won't let you leave where you are. And you keep wondering how you get the strength to go back every single day. All you got to do is lift your eyes unto the hills from whence come your help. It'll help you realize where your help is coming from. Look at the text. He goes back to strengthen the souls of the disciples and to encourage them, to encourage them to continue in the faith. And then to tell them, I got to tell you an awful statement that is true. Through much 
tribulation, we will experience the kingdom of God. Hold up. Is Paul suggesting that you mean tell me that in order for me to enter the kingdom of God, that I've got to enter much tribulation to do so? Absolutely. Because there is no appreciation for value unless the value has become vulnerable. And the value has to become vulnerable because the possessor of the value has to realize what they are actually possessing. That's the reason why when you're in love with God, your prayer time is valued. Your Bible study time is valued. Your testimony is valued. Your witness is valued. And each of those will become vulnerable when you encounter opposition and you encounter an oppressor, but it's an opportunity where God will eventually give you an ovating moment of celebration if you endure through the temptation. Here's another reference point, Matthew 4, when you read the temptation of Jesus and you get down to verse 11, the Bible says Satan left Jesus all of the testing and he left him because Jesus utilized the word of God which is valuable to him and in return the spirit of God that led him into that tribulation will likewise lead us not only into the tribulation but through the tribulation and here's the ovation in Revelation chapter 12, the Bible says that as they gathered in the heavens, there are going to be those who will witness a great coming up, those who are coming out of the earth. And someone will raise the question, who are these and from whence have they come? And someone will respond, these are they who have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb and who have come through great tribulation, who's come through much difficulty. And I'm just trying to tell you, we are here today because we have endured much difficulty. Thank God for Amelia Bolton, who not knowing, left for dead on the Pettus Bridge, but eventually became the testimony and the tribulation for you and I to endure that in the end, we can come back and encourage others in the faith and strengthen other disciples that they might realize this is a part of the journey. Through much tribulation, we enter the kingdom of God. So let me tell you this, three quick things that I know Paul learned or Paul's trying to teach us from this text. Number one, Paul says in verse 19 that he made a helpful decision not to die. So although his oppressors didn't know that he was not dead, I'm just suggesting in my own spirituality that in that moment in which he is being stoned, Paul looked in himself and says, no matter what they're doing, I will not die where I am. And sometimes you find yourself in predicaments where you are being opposed and oppressed. You cannot allow the oppressor to think that he has defeated or killed you. But you have to, in your own spirit, make a determination, I will not die where I am. So you have to make that decision to be helpful. Help yourself. 
and utilize the inspiration that God has given you. There it is right there in verse 19. But then watch this in verse 20. Paul further makes a hopeful determination to arise from the ashes. And I use the word ashes simply because they think that they have extinguished the fire that is in Paul. And there are some people who think that because they can put rules on you or blanket your progress that they have extinguished your joy. And you mustn't allow them to put your fire out because if they do, we can only see smoke. And the smoke only suggests that either there is fire or that there was fire. But if we see ashes and Paul has decided that I must make the hopeful determination that they will not steal my joy to live. And no matter what they say, no matter even the diagnosis. I must have the hopeful determination to live. And then finally, look at verse 21 and 22. Paul made a healing decision to help others despite the opposition. Despite who stoned him, he goes back to the very town and starts witnessing. Most of us, when we are hurt, wounded, and particularly when we talk about church, we're going to get out of that place. We're going to leave there as quick, as quick as possible. But then we only become running disciples. Not renewing disciples. So we run from church to church to church, and wherever they hurt me, I move to the next one, and I move to the next one. And you would think that common sense would inform you that hurt is everywhere. Because human beings are practitioners of hurt. And it takes maturity to recognize when I'm hurting, and if I have hurt, there is, according to God's grace, the element of healing those I've even hurt. But yet we run because we don't like to face sometimes the opposition that's in the mix that's really God's usage of trying to create an opportunity to heal. That's what makes a community. Forgiveness. Setting each free. Now you can imagine, again, you got to use your spiritual imagination. Those who are around Paul, I just want to contend for a moment. Do you really think each one of them got along all the time together? But a crisis can create community. Now, what happens after the crisis is another conversation. In America, we're good at creating community in a crisis. But when the crisis has concluded, we go back to our segregated gatherings. So we come together to alleviate the pain of the moment, but it doesn't help us as a people because all we are doing is actually using each other to help ourselves alleviate the pain of the moment. It's an existential kind of experience that doesn't breathe eternal life in the moment. And look what Paul does. He gets up and goes back in the town to encourage, to strengthen, and to inform them. Through this kind of tribulation, this is how we grow in the kingdom of God. 
I close by saying, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could come to church and our church had no problems, not a single problem at all. No one in the pew had an issue. Everybody's life is rosy, flying high on cloud nine and above. You couldn't buy a problem in the church. But then the question would become, if I didn't have one, how would I know the joy of solving one? And if there were not painful moments, how would I know to celebrate joy? And if there were not challenges, how would I know how to create endurance and strength? And if there were not moments in which life is frustrating, how would I know how to encourage someone else if I hadn't experienced a frustrating moment myself? So do yourself the largest favor you could possibly think of and get out of your mind thinking that you need to be a part of a church that ain't got no problems. That's an impossible task. And I'm here to tell you, I've been in big churches and in small churches. You know the difference between the two? The small churches is you can see it very well. The big church, we just hide it very well. That's the only difference. The same drama that you see in the small church, we got it in the larger church. It's just magnified and it's far more larger, but we've learned how to cover it up because we don't want to be reduced from large to small. I'm just telling you, I've been there, know the deal. The good thing about a ch small church is you can't hide it. That means you got to deal with it or else it's going to eventually eat you alive like a cancer. But see, the large church, I can pacify and cover it up. Pacify and cover it up. Because people who come to worship just want to worship. Don't tell me about no problems. I don't want no problems. I got no problems of my own. I don't want to have no problem in my church. All I want my church to do is just give me the word and I go home. Here it is right here in the text. You can't have community without confrontation. And confrontation comes from opposition and comes from oppressors. Ain't got time to tell you now, but there are even oppressors in the kingdom of God. And yet Paul says, I got to go back and strengthen him. I'm going to close on this note. I know I said it before. I really mean it this time. I'm going to close on this note. How many of you have gotten upset because of what was going on here? You go home and say, I ain't going back. I ain't never going back. That's it. I'm done. Don't raise your hand, but I, I know the deal. But something drives you back. Something brings you back. Something causes your spirit to say one more time. Something says it's going to get better. We crazy now, but it's going to get better after a while. Something says family do these kind of things. And might I add to you people who want to pretend and who try to make the impression that their family don't have drama. They're lying. We have drama stuff. It's human dynamic. Because somebody is not going to, have you, you noticed when you get, if it's just between you 
and yourself, you can make that decision and be happy because can't nobody be this happy with you but you. But when it's you and her and him and him and her, someone may not agree with what the decision is. All you got to do is let somebody pass away in your family. And we act like utmost fools when death occurs in our family. That's the time we should be comforting and hit. We go ballistic. It's human dynamic. And you might ask, why does God let that happen? So we can demonstrate love, grace, and mercy. So we can show them that I know you lost it for a moment, but I love you through the midst of it all. And you know the referring moment? God says, I let that happen because there are times when you lose it and you have lost it. And I loved you through it. I didn't leave you. You cursed all at me and you didn't have anything else to do with me and I never left you. I kept on loving you because I want you to do the same. Because someone is going to come to you who's been stoned and left for dead. I need you to stand around them and help lift them up. That, to me, is the church that I'm trying to build. That's the place I believe God wants us to be. Not a place that pursues or thinks in their mind that they are perfect, but a place that recognizes their imperfection, but we're working on ourselves, becoming better than what we are. That's what I think people are looking for now. We're losing in our traditional churches. We're losing. We're losing people. And non-traditional churches are growing leaps and bounds because they're not caught up in the parameters that we've created all the years. They're just trying to love folk where they are. Lord, let the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable.